Hello, welcome again to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by Chris Power to discuss Ian MacDonald's 1994 book, Revolution in the Head. Chris Power is a short story writer and literary critic for The Guardian. He's been writing a regular column for The Guardian about short stories since 2007. His first book of short stories, Mothers, was published in 2018, and his debut novel, A Lonely Man, will be released in April of this year. Revolution in the Head, one of the most famous and influential books in Beatles literature, has seen a slight diminishing in its reputation in the last few years. Chris and I discuss whether that's justified and what this book means to us. Chris Power, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me, Joe. Looking forward to it. No problem at all. Um, so we're here to talk about Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head, which came out at the end of 1994, believe it or not. But I was hoping we could just start with uh, a little kind of trawl back through your memory of your early Beatles experiences and specifically were they tied into any kind of Beatles literature? What other Beatles books did you first kind of encounter? Well, the Beatles for me were, were kind of, um, kind of a, a, a family property. I've got two older brothers. And so I think we used to have the, the red and blue albums in the car um, on these sort of chunky tape boxes, like four cassettes or whatever they were. And I feel like the red got more play in my in my youth than the blue. My my parents were more like they had the hits of the Beatles played by the London Philharmonia, and that was their kind of uh, that was their kind of vibe. But I loved, yeah, they were just very much around. They were just part of the sort of um, you know the groundwater, I guess, when I was a kid. And uh, book wise, I mean, the ones that were in my house were um, the Love You Make, which I didn't read. It was just, I just remember seeing it on the, on the shelf in this sort of quite lurid orange sort of hardback um, edition. And, um, and my brother is a pianist. So the Beatles complete songbook uh, was often lying around. I was obsessed with that weird image of the kind of, it was the one, it was the, the, the cover had these sort of eyes in the darkness and this sort of psychedelic waterfall flowing down between them, which completely, entranced me when I was a kid uh, I used to spend or I feel like I spent hours just just staring at it <laughs> so revolution in the head then it, it comes out like I said come out in December 1994 uh, was that when you first encountered it or was it something that you kind of came to later on yeah I came to it later on I was around um, around 2000 I was working in a now defunct bookstore on Charing Cross Road called uh, Borders, an American uh, chain that got destroyed in the in the credit crunch. I think um, it's a TK Maxx now, opposite Foils. But I was working up on the music floor there, and it was a really it was a good it was a good time. There were a lot of like real, um, you know, very bookish people and very and very musically minded people. And a friend of mine. Um, sort of uh, directed it to me one day and you could sort of uh, occasionally you know you got lucky with a shift I always worked a late shift on a Saturday so there was quite a lot of time where you could sort of read and just put stuff on the stereo and listen to whatever you wanted and he pushed this book on me and it was kind of weird because I sort of came to it which we might get to um, in a minute perhaps but my you know the Beatles weren't sort of at the foremost of my of my listening by any means at that I was actually mainly listening to um, sort of electronic stuff. I'd, I'd sort of, you know, I, was, I had a lot of guitar music, but I wasn't sort of really keeping up with it. 
so I wasn't so I started reading it sort of as a I suppose as a work of literature rather than as a reference guide to you know my favorite band which is I'm sure the way a lot of people come to it so it was a sort of back to front experience really because I sort of appreciated it as a piece of writing and then I think it sort of it sort of pulled me back towards the Beatles and made me want to listen to recordings I'd either forgotten or had never even heard and certainly had never heard them with the ears that Ian MacDonald sort of gave me to listen to them because of his qualities as a writer. So I think it was quite an unusual introduction to it in that respect, but I was just seized by the, but just by his command and just by his sort of, uh, his style. Really. My own personal kind of encounter with it, I kind of encountered it around that anthology time of, of 95 when I was about kind of 12 or, or 13. And I remember getting it, uh, well, probably about 97. I think the, yeah, the, maybe the second edition came out kind of post-anthology. So mm. I, I remember picking it up then. And what was kind of great for me was as a 13-year-old, there's a lot in, the, in this book that I didn't understand. You know, there was a lot of it that... You, completely went over my head as it was kind of meant to I suppose um so I then delved into Beatle literature as you can probably gather um a bit deeper (laughs) and then I came it's funny because I came back to it so yeah around about 2002 which was my first year at university it it kind of came with me to to (laughs) uni um and by that point I I was I was studying literature at at the time and by that point I was kind of in a better frame of mind for kind of digesting it than Mm. I was at 13 because there was just you know there was no way I could have grasped it and it was like almost like reading a new book and a little bit like you actually I'd kind of fallen off maybe slightly fallen off the beetle wagon a bit between about 16 17 18 um just because there was other stuff you know other stuff going on uh really? and then and then this book completely reignited my my passion for it it's fascinating how a book can do that isn't it how this this mm. one I, I can't think of many other Beatles books that would maybe inspire that um there's there's something in the right I was just gonna say what was it do you think about the writing of it that m- kind of made it, it you know it, I don't you but I feel like the music kind of came alive a bit when I was reading it well, yeah, I think he's he's clearly like a supremely gifted listener and he's very talented at describing sound, which is obviously something that, that every music journalist attempts to do and some are, some are better at it than others. But he seems to have like the whole, the whole kit because he can write about, you know, the technical uh, in a way that, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a musicologist, but it, it seems, it seems to me to be, to be legit. You know, he seems to, he'll write at one moment in a way that you'd expect to see in like guitar world or something like very in depth on the particular sound of a guitar or whether it's varnished or unvarnished or whether it's, you know, what, what chord progression is, is being played. And then a sort of analysis, which is really close to sort of literary analysis, which was something I was more familiar with like yourself I studied English lit and I've sort of you know always been keeping up to speed with that side of things um but also the emotional and the anecdotal there's loads of just purely like entertaining kind of ephemera in as well and the way he sort of moves between all those registers sometimes within a single sentence let alone a single you know song um and obviously the book is divided you know song by song throughout the whole the whole body of work you know, I know he makes some very bold claims, 
<laughs> very bold claims. Mm. But he's very rarely over the top. I think, um, I think the one sort of section where I've kind of gone over it in, in pencil and sort of put a big exclamation mark was in when he's describing Come Together and he talks about, um, it's, it's worth quoting actually, he says it's the key song of the turn of the decade, isolating a pivotal moment when the free world's coming generation rejected established wisdom, knowledge, ethics and behaviour for a drug-inspired relativism which has since undermined the intellectual foundations of Western culture. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Is a humdinger but I mean that is I feel in one sense you know that's that's you know that, that's a big statement and maybe it's like a bit of a reach but he kind of earns it because he doesn't he doesn't really reach for that register all the time this isn't the sort of like sonic cathedral school of you know rock mm -hmm. writing where he's constantly sort of really going for the next superlative you know he's very judicious which I think from my you know limited understanding of how the book is viewed I know that that some people feel that he's you know just wrong about you know lots of songs but I think that that's sort of beside the point of whether the book you know the book sort of stands as an argument it, it's an argument and it, and it sort of invites you to argue with it mm. and because he's always backing up his case then you can disagree with him of course but it doesn't mean it's it's you know it doesn't it doesn't weaken the book as a whole whether you think his judgment of you know, of um, the White Album is, is, is correct or whatever. It sort, of, it sort of goes beyond that. And I think he does reinvigorate your own listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting that you, you say about, um, we're jumping around now, but hey, why not? Um, the, <laughs> the change in perception of it. So, so when I contacted you to kind of arrange, we, we talked a bit about this. And I think this book was universally adored when it was first released in that late 90s period. And I suppose actually thinking about it, there's a bit of a timing boost there because end of 94 into 95, certainly in the UK, Britpop is, is there. And, you know, the rise of Oasis and, and others, you know, that, that adored the Beatles. In fact, on the back of the version that, that you showed me uh, before we started talking, there's a, a Noel Gallagher quote um, which oh, I, I, I think just says, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think it just says, fucking amazing book, man. Yeah, fucking amazing book, man. And an ellipsis, fascinating, comma, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> for Noel. Noel. It says Noel Gallagher of Oasis, which also sort of dates it. In its, Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. But I mean, the <laughs> fact that, that he's quoted, uh, you know, on the back of it around then, I, I, I wonder if the... You know, thinking back to that time, I think it, it was kind of lucky in a sense to come out when it did, um, because you did see an upsurge in things like, you know, you had the anthology that came out um, around that, which was that was November '95, so that that's a mm. year on from this, probably around the time the paperback was released. So I, I think it it really it, it sort of lucked out in a sense that if this book had come out in you know, 10 years earlier, late 80s, you know, or, or mid 80s. I don't know whether or not it, um, it would have got the same, you know, kind of boost in, in popularity. Um, and that, in fact, also on the, the back of that, that version you've got there, it says that the beat was influenced such current acts as Oasis Blur, and I think it's Cooler Shaker are the other band. <laughs> I suppose the, the question is, do you think that the, um, the, the popularity of this was kind of helped by the times that it came out in? 
Yeah, I think it must have been. I mean, like you say, it was it was sort of lucky because I don't actually know how long he took to write it, but he must have started at least a couple of years before publication, and it was, if not longer, and it was, yeah, I mean, I guess the Beatles were sort of in the in the doldrums, sort of reputation-wise then. I mean, I think for me, certainly when I was sort of really getting into music in the, in the late 80s and the, and, and the turn of the decade, even the bands who were influenced by them like say stone roses and stuff weren't really necessarily talking about it not sort of front and center and the stuff i was into in the late 80s like the cure i mean there was no like real link i mean i'm sure they were, you know they grew up they would have heard beatles records there is a link but it wasn't any they weren't sort of being listed as references no. um and obviously you had oasis which was sort of an explicit one albeit sparked some ridiculousness i was i was trying to remember if it was in the Melody Maker or NME, I, I bought both of them at the, t- at the time, like every week. But when um, Oasis released a single called Whatever between, like, I think between the first two albums, and there was this quote where it said something like, uh, it took the Beatles four years to go from Love Me Do to Sgt. Pepper's. Oasis have managed it in six months. <laughs> wow. It's just, I mean, the, the peak sort of, you know, ridiculousness of a band... You know, the, the difference between a groundbreaking band and a yeah. band which sometimes pastiching, you know, what came before it was it was a sort of it was it was peak peak rock journalism nonsense. But but there was also another strand where because for me around sort of mid 90s, I was um, DJing and listening to a lot of electronic music. And as I still do, and which Ian McDonald interestingly kind of engages with at the end of his book, he talks about rave. I mean, in quite a disparaging way, Very but it's, uh, yeah. it's an interesting, you know, it, it was obviously in the air there, but there were, you know, various things like um, there were these, uh, this German production duo called Sun Electric, who released this amazing album that's sort of in the zone between techno and, and ambient. And it was like a live album and they have this amazing track called Castor and Pollux, an 18-minute sort of through-composed piece. And at the end of it, they weave in a very filtered sort of sample of Hard Day's Night, and it just sort of comes in and out of the mix, sort of undulating. And that was very much, for me, what the Beatles were. They'd become this sort of like, um, you know, this hauntological kind of uh, kind of atmosphere. You know, there's something that I was aware of, and they were tied yeah. to my childhood, and, they were, and I loved the, the songs, you know, but I was never like, putting on a Beatles album, but there they were nonetheless. And obviously Chemical Brothers sort of uh, were hugely influenced. You know, they've, they've based several tracks on Tomorrow Never Knows and that sort of broken Tom Tom beat on it. And they did it explicitly. They did a record with Noel Gallagher called Setting Sun that is kind of a, like a like a rave version of, of Tomorrow Never Knows. There was the guitar influence, but they were, they were just around. I think because of the, the sort of rave scene and psychedelics becoming fashionable again, that sort of reawakened that sort of 60s wave that, that I guess the 70s and 80s had kind of looked askance at because yeah. you kind of do that, right? You look on the last decade and you're like, well, that was naff. But back then, that was, that was really good. And then I think I, I moved to America in, in, to study for a year in, in like 96. And there I actually found, I guess because of like classic rock stations, I found sort of people my age were way more literate about the Beatles. They'd grown up with it all around them, but they'd never been a kind of falling away because they were always playing like 
there'd be a radio station that just played like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Birds or whatever, like all, all day long. So they had all this sort of knowledge and there were these, the albums were reissued on vinyl then. And I remember getting like Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour while I was in the States, just because I think being around these other people who were like really into it sort of reawakened my own excitement. One of them even gave me a, a book that was all about the Paul is dead, like conspiracy which was ridiculous, but fun. I mean, because I'd never heard that stuff. I'd never, like, been, or I'd heard about it and forgotten about it, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, they were definitely, you know, obviously when, when Revolution Ahead came out, yeah, it did coincide with, with several strands, which, which was sort of capped, I guess, yeah, by the anthology and there suddenly being like a new Beatles single in the chart that had like a video and stuff and, you know, there was it was suddenly they were they were zeitgeisty in a way again they hadn't been for for 20 years i guess yeah i think this book captures that quite well without um i suppose meaning to um because I, I don't know if you know a lot about him mcdonald but because he was a, a journey he's born in 1948 um which is mm. uh which is the same year as my dad and my dad always says that he kind of won the lottery of of music by being born then because he got he was old enough for the you know the mid 60s and got a lot of good 70s stuff and was still clinging on in the late 70s for punk and so he worked for he was a journalist and worked for like uh, sounds and, and melody maker and those other magazines that, that you mentioned and then he kind of he, he kind of gave up writing about popular music through the 80s and, and 90s and because his first book was a book about Shostakovich the classical mm. composer which which came out in 1990 and then this and then the success of this led him to kind of reignite his kind of popular music writing and he would appear in in things like mojo i think mojo was the main one i mean there's another example of how things change you know magazine like that could appear that would always that would tend to have a in inverted commas kind of classic rock artist on the front cover Obviously, you had Q, which was the one that came out in the eight in the mid eighties that kind of started mm-hmm. that, um, and then things like Uncut and Word obviously a- appeared out of that. But Ian McDonald then kind of found a home in in Mojo and, and maybe a few other magazines. So I, I think it, it's kind of interesting how, because I mean, I have to confess, I've not read the Shostakovich book. I think it's interesting how that it kind of came out of nowhere. This book, I, I don't know if there was. I mean, I have looked in vain for some information about the writing of it. Um, There's it, not a lot of information out there on on him, mm. on, on Ian McDonald himself. There's not a huge amount out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's just interesting how it, it sort of came out of the blue. You know, I think it, it, it kind of appeared in that, in that late 90s. You know, not many people would go from a Shostakovich book to a, a Beatles book. It's, it's quite, a, it's quite a, an about turn. Um, and then the only other book that he wrote after that uh, is uh, like an anthology collection called The People's Music, um, mm. which is a collection of other stuff that he wrote. And he did write a, a new introduction for a, a kind of pre down version of this book. Um, which just covered has the entries for the number one singles, which they released around the time of the one compilation coming out in, right. in 2000. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, he's quite a mysterious figure that I don't think there's any, you know, it's funny thinking about it now, you know, uh, uh, author wise, if a book comes out, they're on a, you know, you can just look on a podcast or a YouTube video or a radio and there's, and there's often, you know, a lot to choose from, but there's there's not a lot with with Ian McDonald. Um, 
Yeah, that's true. He is, he is sort of enigmatic. And there is a sort of, from the sort of fragments I've been able to pick up, there is a sort of autobiography sort of woven through very much in the in the background. But like that come together excerpt I quoted when he is talking about the, he talks about materialism a lot. And he talks about this sort of loss of um, of spirituality, but in a kind of in a sort of belief of, of something above and beyond the sort of physical realities. And he has some despairing sort of side notes about, you know, the way sort of 60s revolutionaries, by the time he was writing this book, they were all like advertising executives and stuff. And this sort of like decline, like he was talking about the decline of, of the sort of Western uh, sort of enlightenment ideals, I suppose. And obviously he, he killed himself. And as I understand, it was, you know, he was, he was, um, suffering from depression and he was sort of despairing of the state of the world. I haven't read it, but I, I, I know that he's, I think it must have been from Mojo that he wrote about Nick Drake, who he was at university with, I think, and was yeah. sort of involved in his, in his career and how this, this sort of piece, again, makes some sort of quite grand claims. And I think Richard Williams was writing about it in The Guardian, who I assume wrote with him back in the 70s at, at, was it Melody Maker that they would have been, or was yeah, it, was it yeah I think got, so yeah Richard Williams um, wrote his obituary for for the Guardian uh, um, which is a yeah. which is a, a you know as much as it can be a great piece when it's in a bit when it's an obituary it's a it's a really mm. it's a beautifully written piece uh, but yeah uh, talking about Nick Drake it's funny because Nick Drake is a similarly enigmatic figure you know there's no film of Nick Drake there's no mm-hmm. really little audio of, of Nick Drake so it, it, it's strange that they would um, yeah, I think they had a, a friend. I think a friendship. I think he was one. Ian McDonald was someone that kind of recognised that talent that not many other yeah, people did in in Nick Drake. Um, but yeah, you know, just going back to the book a bit. The I wonder if you had any, anything to say about the the essay at the beginning. I reread it. Obviously, I reread the book in preparation for this, and I left that essay until last night. It's you know, I mean, if you could imagine my thirteen-year-old head trying to digest that, it, it w- wasn't that easy. But yeah, it's it, it seems to kind of suggest that those ideals of the sixties and seventies, the early seventies, and had come into that kind of Reaganism, Thatcherism, I suppose, um, of the of the eighties. I kind of got a, a quite a bleak kind of feeling from it. I, I'm not about you. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it is bleak, and I, I think. I think to to apply some McDonaldonian uh, harshness, I think it's I think it's the weakest part of the book. Actually, I think it's if you started by reading that, it's a sort of like thirty thirty five page essay that I think was sort of widely held up. You know, it was it was praised along with the rest of the book when when the book came out. But I do think it I do think he's at his weakest when he's generalising. You know, that one of the great strengths of this book is it's specificity and how he how he argues sometimes builds up a very large sort of you know decade spanning argument but from specific things you know from like the chord that starts a hard day's night or whatever it is you know he expands out from like you're talking about the the tristan chord in wagner or something it's and he, and he carries you along for that journey it's really exhilarating you know it's a really exciting book to read but i think he sort of in that opening essay you know there are lines like um I don't know, the, the hair got longer and the skirts got shorter. And, and it's just, it just feels, I think because the rest of the book is, is so good and so strong, it mm. just feels a bit weaker, though it was clearly important to him. I mean, he's really trying to say, I mean, the subtitle of the book is um, the, Be- the Beatles records and the 60s. Mm. And it's like, 
if you divide that subtitle, the bit on the Beatles records is like a masterpiece. The bit on the 60s, when he's just talking about the 60s generally, is not so great. When he is expanding from a particular record into the, the time, the spirit of the age or whatever, then it, then it works a lot better. And you kind of feel it. It's almost like when he does go back to a specific, you know, you're, you're stepping onto solid ground again. But then part of that essay is a really brilliant description of his own book. He says in it, he says, um, part of the aim of this book is to replace gushing hero worship with a detached posterity anticipating tally of what the Beatles did. While this entails some deflation and occasionally a little harsh criticism, the hope is also by avoiding cliches in favour of close examination in context. And that's a really key, the key phrase, I think, to make the group's music as fresh and exciting as it was when it first appeared. I think the first time I read that, I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, if you read someone saying, well, I'm going to replace gushing hero worship with something, you know, a bit more evaluative. Normally that's an excuse for someone to like, let rip, like really, really kick the shit out of someone. <laughs> but he really doesn't mean it like that. You know, that, that when he praises, which is often, you know, and, and throughout, it's entirely ungrudging. You know, you can feel the enthusiasm that he feels for these records. And at the same time, he's really rigorous and opinionated. And if he thinks something is rushed or overblown or tasteless or uninspired, he absolutely calls it out. And like I said, he backs up his argument. And from that point on, it's, it's you know, up to the individual reader to kind of get on with that. And I think, you know, if, if, I'm, if I come to this as a Beatles obsessive and I read him absolutely slagging, you know, one of my favourite songs, it's almost a point of pride because I think he, he considers the work so important and extraordinary that it can absolutely take its knocks, you know, like he can, it, it's not like it doesn't sour the whole thing. I think sometimes with music writing, it can fall into a pattern of, of um, you know, over the top praise or sort of blanket praise or, you know, this is terrible and the whole thing's a waste of time, one out of 10 or whatever. And it's, and that's very rarely the, the case. And, and, you know, it's really, invigorating you know it makes you want to go back and listen to records you didn't rate that much and it makes you want to listen to ones that you really rate and he's slagged off just so you can sort of try and listen with his ears or see if you agree with him or and I think it sort of deepens your relationship with those songs in a sense that it's one of the most exciting things about it and he also puts you right up front with him one of the things I really love is he describes some of the songs as if they're like physical environments he talks about um talks about hold me tight and he writes the hanging chords of the middle eight plunge dramatically into minor darkness before re-emerging in the triumphant light of the major and you're just there it's just there as a as a journey that you're on mm. and he also captures this this real excitement of the sort of in the studio ingenuity that was going on particularly sort of I guess like post 66 and after the, after they stopped touring and worrying about, you know, being able to recreate any of this stuff live. There's an amazing um, section on strawberry fields forever. And it's worth saying like all the sort of all the, all the big records and many of the like not big ones, he just knocks out of the park. It's like, you know, what's he going to write about tomorrow? I never know. And it's just like incredible when you get to it. He never, he never seems to like drop the ball on any of those big, big moments um but he writes about strawberry fields forever and how they had to you know it wasn't what lennon wanted and he wanted this sort of uh specific atmosphere and 
whereas McCartney was really sort of um, fluent in explaining this stuff to George Martin, John Lennon would just kind of go, that's not it, you know, <laughs> and say something sort of quite abstract. Mm. And how they spliced together two completely different takes, but how the, the tempo shift actually married up to the key shift and just the way he describes it and talking about this moment like on dead on one minute where you could hear this sort of atmosphere change but that's the only sort of detectable thing Mm. it's so exciting you're you're just there you feel like you're there in abbey road like as as this is happening you know and it's that's sort of invaluable and not something i don't i think i've experienced in any other music yeah i couldn't agree more for me personally the description of twist and shout which obviously was recorded as you know the last song on that that one mm. day they had to record the the first album and you know he describes John stripped to the waist sweat pouring off his body he's got a terrible sore throat uh, trying to drink the milk and suck the cough sweets um, and yeah as you say you're you're kind of in that in that studio there um, there there aren't many Beatles books that can do that um, this, you know there's, there's nothing anywhere near like this um something else just i I don't know if you're aware either um is paul mccartney's view of this book now paul mccartney comes out quite well i think in this book and something that's important Mm -hmm. to remember there is that in 1994 his kind of critical stock was nowhere near where it is now so so really that that's a sort of not a risk but it it was a a new way of looking at the Beatles where post John's death a lot of the books that came out about either John himself or or the Beatles John was still seen as that kind of sainted figure you know the martyr the fighter for love and peace you know the the heart of the Beatles one of the the joys of this book for me is that you know that that's so I mean obviously that's so far from the truth we we know now and part of the reason that we know that are I think is is this book because it as you say it, it it gives credit where it's due and a lot of the time that credit is due to Paul McCartney but he I think he's been asked about it only a few times and he's quite sniffy about it mm-hmm. he's not he's not said I mean he, to be fair he's generally sniffy about a lot of Beatles books which I can understand it must be quite odd reading a book like this when it when you're in it you know it's it's it must be quite a strange feeling but yeah I'm I, I don't know why he's so critical of it. Um, do you think that's just a like, head shrinker moment of, of picking up a book like this and, and you're on every page? Yeah, that, that could well be. And I think, I think it might also be related to McDonald's ability uh, or tendency, which is another thing I really love about the book, to analyse musically and psychologically at the same time or for his musicology to have a psychoanalytic dimension um there's an example i picked out where he talks about um for no one which Mm. is kind of like you know he acknowledges that it's sort of a a perfect tune but he's also sort of critical about it as well like this horn solo he said that people have praised and it's a beautiful piece of music he says it really has nothing to do with like the theme of that that's the kind of you know, rigor he applies. He's like, yeah, this is pretty, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the kind of psychological sort of yeah. views of the song. But he talks about it developing and he talks about the musical progression um, reproducing its protagonist's obsessive sort of examination of his predicament. You know, it's about the end of a, of a love affair, obviously. And he says, uh, he writes, exhausting every possibility, yet hesitating over a suspension at the end of each chorus before going round again to make sure all the options have been covered. And that sort of rises out of this sort of very 
you know, he's concentrated solely on the music, but suddenly you're in the psyche of the protagonist. Mm. And famously, you know, McCartney would write like a novelist, sort of write about personas, whereas Lennon wanted to, you know, write his truth. You know, you can only write about yourself and your, your pain. And I think if you're ascribing psychological motives to someone's songwriting, or as he often does, sort of says, you know, they were competitive and, and so they both heard the phrase, I think Ringo saying a hard day's night, whatever. And, and John hurries home to sort of write the song because, you know, Paul's racked up the last couple of singles and he wants to, and I think Paul McCartney sort of has disagreed with, you know, McDonald's, uh, the motives McDonald has ascribed to certain things and saying like, it just wasn't like that. And I, th- I, I don't know, it's either, you know, to, to his, to his mind that that's not true or it's just like, or you just don't like someone being that presumptuous because it's not like he's come and interviewed them and then he's you know he's drawing this from looking at the discography and listening to the the record so it might feel like sort of invasive or like get back in your box like who are you to say this but also it's kind of to an extent beside the point what the truth is I mean I think they're interesting ways to look at the records and I don't think I was thinking about it because I'd read that Mackay, sort of Googled Mackay to say, I wonder what, okay. you know, what, what he said about it. And when I was reading back through it, I was expecting those bits to be sort of more forcefully expressed. But I think when you read them, they do feel like, again, going back to literary criticism, it feels like an argument being put forward about a text or in this case, a song rather than him saying, you know, I've got the inside scoop. I've got the the gossip. This is what, was going on do you know what i mean it feels yeah. like yeah it feels like he's basing it on you know he, he's putting forward an argument or a thesis without it being you know the the unvarnished truth you're going to hear it here first you know i guess i agree um to kind of conclude i suppose i was, thought we could just have a, a brief kind of discussion about where this book sits now so as i said uh, previously that you know the it was adored when it came out and yeah, you know, you, you had Noel Gallagher and whoever else singing its praises on the back cover there in the last maybe four or five years in kind of Beatledom, there has been uh, a little bit of a, not a fall from grace, but it certainly had a few more people look at it and say, just as you said, well, it's just one man's opinion. You know, it's just one angle on this which I think is yeah I mean I, I agree with you I do think that's that's an unfair and somewhat misguided way of looking at it so two kind of quick questions around that first of all do you think that's with any literature I suppose do, do you think that's inevitable that sometimes opinions change especially on a book like this and and finally what did you get from it by rereading it was there anything that kind of leapt out at you or was there anything that kind of uh, changed your views of it when you reread it in preparation for this? Well, I think, yeah, opinions do change and should, you know, whether that's, you know, new things coming to light or whether that's partly, you know, McDonald's own success in, in making people who read his book sort of re-engage with the music or think about it in a new way or listen, you know, more closely than they have done before. And, Again, I, th- I think the problem is, I think it was, it was sort of hailed as, you know, the Beatles book and, you know, this is it. This is, this is the summit. And that's, you know, that, that I don't think, I don't think he was aiming for that. Like it makes it sort of understandable to an extent that sort of, 
it's sort of enthronement because it's this sort of you know totalizing view and it's like every single recording so it's it's formally you know very bold but at the same time yeah it is an argument and it, it's one person's opinion but what a what a person's opinion to have you know yeah. i mean time and again record after record he proves if nothing else he's incredibly committed and engaged and smart listener um and you know he has all these these nuggets that it's just not not just about the beatles he's talking about roll over beethoven and he's talking about uh chuck berry and he has this great phrase to uh he says with its references to these rhythm and blues Roll Over Beethoven was one of its author's earliest attempts to mythologize his market category and talking about how Chuck Berry would always sing about rock and roll because he yeah. was kind of cementing rock and roll's like, you know, position when rock and roll was seen as a very ephemeral thing that was going to, you know, blow over in like, you know, a year or two. And we go back to like Bobby Soxes and I don't yeah. know, Sinatra or whatever. Um, and then, you know, in, I think in a footnote, he talks about... Um, Bob Dylan's uh, lyrics and I think talking about how Lennon sort of hadn't listened to the lyrics or claimed not to listen to the lyrics um, and he says Dylan's lyrics of this period were so brilliant that rival songwriters could have ignored them scare quotes only out of jealousy or sheer terror and it's just the stuff you know they, I mean if you're not a footnote reader really do read these footnotes and yeah. happily they are footnotes they are like on the page rather than being end notes which would be disastrous at mm. least in the edition i've got i hope the more recent one mm. keeps it like that because they, they i mean there's so much stuff in them that you, they really some of them i don't even know why they're footnotes i guess it's just to make the text a bit more manageable but i think um yeah one person's opinion but i mean in this regard like a genius i mean i think that that word it's certainly with his his approach to the music and his like you know, clear passion for it, but without being bewitched by it, I suppose, like he is when it's good enough to bewitch him. But that sort of sternness he's got is really important because if this was like 350 pages of, of love or even more love than it is now, it would be sort of syrupy sweet, I guess, or saccharine. Like part of it, part of its brilliance is that is that sort of the rough bark that you come up against when he's like, slagging off the backing vocals on Nowhere Man or talking about, you know, their inept programming by putting two songs with the same pattern of ooh-la-la backing vocals next to each other on the record. It's brilliant. It's brilliant stuff. And I think mm. coming back to it, uh, to answer the second part, you question that, that on rereading, I think I was just amazed again by how brilliant it was. I think, you know, certain things I'd really remembered and certain phrases I'd remembered that had always that just just really struck me as as really interesting ways of looking at things like the way he talks about revolution nine being uh the world's most widely distributed avant-garde artifacts you know just these really interesting ways of, of of looking of looking at things but beyond that it was just the the richness you know you hear as a sort of a blurb you know that there's something fascinating on every page but it's completely true with this book it's like there was always something my my copy is you know it's more graphite from my pencils than it is like printer's ink it's like it's just it's so rich and i think it and i think it's sort of despite not being particularly impressed with that opening essay mm. you know the, the overall strength of it is so strong that like the the discography that it's exploring you know it's strong enough to for you to find fault without it making the whole work collapse well 
I feel almost inspired to reread it again, Chris, after that, after that hour. Um, hopefully we've convinced anyone out there that's listening to this podcast that hasn't read Revolution in their head to, to pick it up straight away. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful book. So, yeah, Chris, thanks so much for your time. I, I've, I've really enjoyed this. Oh, thanks for asking me, Joe. I've loved it.